Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Romans 6 and Romans 8 is where we're going to be. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and have that out and open on your lap, that would really serve you. So I I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, If that's on your phone, if that's one under the chairs, under three or four... uh, Every three or four chairs, you should be able to find one. So we would really love you to have that out and open on your lap because we don't want you to have like blind trust that what we're saying is, is what the Bible says. We want you to look at the Bible and then listen, right? And so we want you to, to, to know where this stuff is coming from as we talk about it and to make sure that you're testing it, to make sure it's right and true and lines up with the Bible. So Romans 6 and Romans 8. And while you're turning there, let me just encourage you on uh, one quick thing. Christmas is here, isn't it? And that's that feels out of control, but it's already here. And so in light of that, I want to do uh, one thing is just offer an invitation on Christmas Eve. We're going to be right here doing a Christmas Eve service um, from about 5 to 6, 6.15, right in there. And we'd love to have you there. And at the same time, you know, I think it's important when you think about December, it's one of those few times in the year where people are thinking more about spiritual things. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that statistics say that, you know, the, the reason that most people begin coming to a church is that people offer a simple invitation. And so I just want you to be mindful of that, that this is a great month to think about your top five people that you're praying for, for your neighbors, for your friends, to offer a simple invitation. Don't you think people need a good church home? See, I think they really do need a good church home and a good community of believers to help them become all that God has for them to be. And so often, all that requires is a simple invitation. So I just want you to be mindful of that. This is a really great month to be thinking in those sort of ways. Okay, we're in part seven of a set of sermons called Gospel Doctrine and Gospel Culture. And and really, this is the heart of what we're trying to do over this set of sermons. We're trying to create a little bit of space for us to be able to think about the culture of our church family. So the culture is what most of us do most of the time, for us to think about the culture of our church family and maybe even more personally, the the culture of our private lives, our own lives, to think about what do we do most of the time and collectively what do we do most of the time. And here's kind of the core conviction that's underneath all of this is that gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture. So gospel doctrine is we're all idiots, right? We should have this down by now. We're all idiots, and in Christ, we have an incredibly bright future. You do. I do. If you're in Christ, your future is incredibly bright. And here's the great news of the gospel is anyone can get in on this. Now, that doctrine, that should create a very particular culture. The doctrine of grace should produce a culture of grace. The doctrine of reconciliation, we talked about this several weeks ago, should create a culture of peacemaking. The doctrine of regeneration, that God comes and and reorients your heart without any input from you, should create a culture of humility. There should never be a moment where you look at someone else and ask the question, how could they do that? Because the gospel doctrine is, you're an idiot too, right? This This is the boat we're all in. And apart from grace, we would all go down these roads. So it produces humility. See, the doctrine of mercy and forgiveness should produce a culture of mercy and forgiveness. This is the idea. Gospel doctrine is unbelievably wonderful things happen to unworthy people. And that should be producing a culture where unbelievably wonderful things are happening to unworthy people. This is the idea. This is the driving heart of what we're trying to do is to create space to think about, is our culture matching our doctrine? Maybe you could think about it this way. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Harvey Kahn, an old uh, seminary professor, he used to, to describe the church as a model home. 
So what is a model home? A model home is that first home that a builder would create. So the, the, the home, or, you know, the builder creates this home and it becomes that place for prospective buyers to come in and look at that home, to see a glimpse of and to get a picture of what the built out neighborhood will someday be like. And he says, that's the picture of the church. This is the role of the church, that the church is God's model home. It is this place for the world at large to come in and look at, to get a sense of, a realizing sense of the sort of neighborhood that God's going to build for all eternity. This is, this, is the, this is the point of the church. This is the purpose of the church. Maybe we could come at it from this angle. When you think about the world at large, how, are, how is the world at large going to get a sense of the goodness of God and just how great the great news of the gospel is? How is that going to happen? Let me tell you how that's not going to happen. By and large, that's not going to happen because the world at large just finds a Bible someday, opens it up, and reads about God. That is not how the mass amount of people are going to, to see the goodness of God and the great news of the gospel. The, the mass amount of people, the world at large, is going to see how sweet God is and how great the good news is by watching it play out in the lives of people. See, and God has designed it that way. I mean, this is the way God has made it. And this is, this is the big warning to go along with that. As a church, as a church family, it is so possible that we can hold the doctrine and not have the culture. That we can consider the doctrine precious all the while having lost the culture that that doctrine should produce. So as we're thinking about this, it's very important that we see that the, the litmus test of a gospel-centered church is both our doctrine on paper, what it is that we believe is important. Doctrine is massively important. There's no shortcuts around doctrine. But the litmus test is both our, our doctrine on paper and our culture in practice. And by God's grace, we want to be a place that has both of those two things, right? By God's grace, we want to strive toward that, ask God to grow us in both of these two things, holding both doctrine and culture. Okay, so with that said, what we have been doing is just taking a sliver of gospel doctrine and then asking the question, what sort of a culture should that produce? And this morning, we're going to take the gospel doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification, that's our gospel doctrine for the morning. The word sanctification. So this is our gospel doctrine. Okay, now, again, this is not a word that you probably use a whole lot. I'm going to guess about half of us in the room are probably familiar with that word, kind of have an idea of what we're getting at there. Now, in the Bible, the word sanctification is used in two distinct ways. And it's really important that you get both of these two ways. Way number one is going to be much more, um, probably a much more working awareness of that in this room. But most people, when they hear the word sanctification, if you know what it means, you're going to think in way one. And way one is this. Sanctification can be used to describe that, that gradual and grueling process of growing up in Jesus. So you become a Christian, and it's that process of more and more your life looking like the Jesus who saved you. Okay, this, this is one way to use the word sanctification. It's growing up. It's putting off these things and putting on those things. Okay, this is one way to use sanctification, but that's not the, the thing I wanna, want us to consider this morning. I want us to consider way two. Okay, way one is that slow, gradual, grueling process of growing up in Jesus. The second way of talking about sanctification in the Bible is as a past tense reality in a Christian's life. It's something that is done in the past. See, when we're talking about gospel doctrine, we're not talking about things that you do. We're thinking about things that God has done for you on your behalf. 
And there is a way of using the word sanctification in the Bible that describes not what you do, but what God has done for you. Past tense, fully completed, back there in the past at the moment of conversion. Now, this is how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6.11. This will be on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says it this way. And such were some of you, but... This is the moment of conversion. You were this, but you, God, God saved you. That This massive thing happened in your life. And here are some of the things that happened in the moment of conversion. But you were washed. That's part of what happened in conversion. You were, your sin was cleansed from you. You were washed. You were sanctified. There's our word. Past tense, you were sanctified. You were justified legally. You were declared righteous before God. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Okay, so do you see how Paul is using that word sanctified in a past tense at the moment of conversion sort of a way? I get the moment where you come with the empty hands of faith, trusting Jesus, this happened to you. You were sanctified. Now the question is, what does Paul mean when he says you were this? You were sanctified in the past at the moment of conversion. This happened to you. The question is, well, what is that that happened to us? If you're in Christ, what, what happened at the moment of conversion? What does it mean to be sanctified? Now, to answer that, Romans 6 is, is the place to go to. Romans 6 describes what it means to be sanctified in the moment of conversion. So Romans 6 is where Paul kind of fleshes out and explains what he means by 1 Corinthians 6.11. So Romans 6, starting in verse 1, says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now let's just think about the context so we kind of get into what Romans 6 is kind of getting at here. So think about the context of Romans. Romans 3, verse 21, starts the unpacking of the great news of the gospel. So the first three chapters in Romans is, this is who you are. This is, this is how sinful you are. This is how God sees you in your sin. Then you get to Romans 3.21, and, and Paul starts, you know, laying out for us how, you know, how God has met us with grace and mercy and goodness in the midst of our sin. This happens in Romans 3. So he talks about the fact that we're justified now because of Jesus. That in Jesus, we are declared righteous before God. That because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, all of our sin gets applied to him. And all of his perfect record of righteousness now gets applied to us. So that now when God relates to us, it's over the perfect record of Jesus, not our imperfect record. He starts walking us through all of these sorts of things. In Romans 4, it's this idea of justification by faith. That the way that we are made right with God is through the empty hands of faith. It's us coming to God knowing that the only thing we need is, is, is you know, him. We bring nothing to the table. N nothing. We bring nothing that, that earns us favor before God, nothing that earns us righteousness before God. We, we need Jesus 110% completely. So he says justification is by faith. Then you get to Romans 5, and he says in, in verse 1, that here's how we have peace with God. We have peace with God through coming to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. This is how we're reconciled to God. Then you get all the way down into the end of Romans 5, verse 20, and Paul says, here is how great the good news of Jesus is. Wherever sin is, Grace is bigger. However much sin increases, grace will always increase more. Wherever sin abounds, grace will superabound. Now, Paul then is anticipating, and, and by the way, hear that. I want us to know this and feel this this morning. Wherever you see sin in your life, you need to know this about the good news of the gospel. 
is grace is bigger than your sin. Wherever you have that feeling of, man, I am such a loser and a failure. I cannot figure this stuff out. You need to know this about the good news of of the gospel. Grace covers all of that. All of it. Now, then you get to Romans 6.1, and Paul is anticipating the question that arises because of the doctrine of Romans 3, 4, and 5. Wherever sin is, grace is going to be bigger. Wherever sin abounds, grace is going to superabound. So he's anticipating this question. And this is the question that all good preaching, gospel preaching, preaching that is faithful to the good news of Jesus, it's the question that is always going to bring up. He's anticipating this question. So if, 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 if like wherever sin is, grace is going to abound more. Like when I sin, it's just going to make grace look even better because that grace is going to cover it. So if that's true, why wouldn't I just go on sinning then? Why don't we just go all out and do the sin thing if grace is just going to be there to cover it all? Paul anticipates that question, and then he responds to it in verse 2. So verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's his response to that anticipated question. Verse 2. By no means, he says, of course you're not to do that. Of course you're not just to run headlong into sin knowing that grace is going to meet me there in the middle of that sin. That's not how we're to operate as Christians. So the question is, well, why not, Paul? I mean, if grace is going to abound, even when I sin, why not just go after sin? Why wouldn't we? His response, how can we who died to sin Now, you might underline those three words, died to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So so why, why wouldn't we just go on sinning as a Christian knowing that grace will abound? Here's the reason. Because you've died to sin. That's the reason. That's the answer. Now, okay, we died to sin. That that three-word little phrase there, died to sin, that is what Paul means when he talks about you were sanctified in the past at the moment of conversion. This is what he's talking about, that we have died to sin. This is what sanctification in a past tense sort of a way means. It means that at the moment of conversion, in a very real way in you, you died to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. So so let's just kind of unpack the whole story. See, when you were born, this is, the the Bible puts us all in this category. When we're born, our desires are so distorted and deformed by sin that we come out of the womb rebelling against God, not wanting God, right? We, We come out of the womb rebelling and running away from God. This is how deformed and distorted our desires are. We we do not want the things of God right? This is, this is what the, the Bible it uses several words to describe this reality in us. It uses the idea of sin to describe it. Sometimes it'll use this idea of the body of, of flesh or the body of sin. Sometimes it'll call it the flesh, but it's talking about this inner part of you that is so deformed and distorted by sin that it is at war with God. Okay, now this is when we come out of the womb, this is every human being. We, there's this internal part of us that is at war with God. And before you're in Christ, here is the truth for every one of us in here. That part of you that's at war with God is ruling in your heart. It is the reigning master in you. It is what is calling the shots. It is what you are obeying. It's what I was obeying. Pre-Jesus, this is where we all are. We have this flesh, this body of sin in us, and it is the ruling master in our heart. But here's the great news of Jesus. 
Jesus' life, death, and resurrection secured for us when we come with the empty hands of faith. Here's what it does in the moment of us coming to God, being converted, becoming a Christian, being in Christ. In that moment, that ruling master in our heart, we died to it. It has been given a death blow. Okay, this, is, this is the idea. This is what Paul is talking about. When he's talking about you were sanctified, he's saying that old ruling master, that internal part of you that was at war with God, that was ruling in your heart, you died to that. It is no longer the ruling master in you. In a very real way, you have died to that sin. You have died to that ruling master. So you, you just keep reading here and you get to verses six and seven. Look down at that. And this is how Paul talks about it. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we died to sin so that that body of sin, that old ruling master in us, might be brought to nothing. Then he goes on to say, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So it's not just the imagery of we have died to sin. Another way the Bible talks about it is in, in terms of like kingdoms. So when we were born, we were under the dominion of sin. The ruling master, the dominion that we were under, you know, that was calling the shots in our life was sin. This, this body of sin, the flesh in us, that part of us that's at war with God, that was the ruling master. But when, when God saves us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are brought out from underneath the dominion of that sin, and we have a new ruling master in our heart called the Spirit of God. Okay, this is um, how Paul talks about it in Colossians 1, verse 13. He says it this way. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So there is a transfer of kingdoms. This is what it means to be sanctified. Not just that we have died to sin, but that we have got a new ruling master in our heart. That we're no longer under the ruling master of sin, the flesh in us, that internal part of us at war with God. Now the spirit of God is the ruling master in our hearts. Okay, so we've died to sin. But here's the other side of the coin. This is the other part of the coin of being sanctified. One half of the coin is you have died to sin. The other half of the coin is you've been raised to walk in newness of life. There's a new you now. This part of you is dead. That old flesh, that old part of you that's at war with God, it's dead. Now God has put in you a new you, right? And so th this is what you get in verses three and four. You, we've received newness of life. Look at what it says in verse three and four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? In other words, that old you is dead. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, here's the other side of the coin. One side, you've been, you know, you've died. You, you've, you've been taken out of the kingdom of, of the flesh. Here's the other side of it. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So one part of this is the old you is dead. The other side is, and God has made a new you. That all happened in the past in the, at the moment of conversion. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? We have been made a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. That's one half of dying to sin here. That's sanctification. The old you is gone. Behold, all things have become new. There is a new you inside of you. That's what happened at the moment of conversion. So let me just use an, uh, kind of a picture here, put this in picture form to kind of make sense of this. This will be on the screen for you. So pre-being in Christ, here, here is the condition of every human being. This is pre-you being converted, pre-you know, being rescued and redeemed from your sin. 
our hearts, think of your hearts as a territory, as a, as a nation. So in that territory called your heart, the ruling master of your heart was the flesh, sin, the, the body of sin. That was the ruling master. Okay, so think of your heart as a territory. This is the president. This is the dictator. This is the ruling master in your heart. But at the moment of conversion, when you become in Christ, you come to, to God in faith, at, at that moment, there is a new reality that happens. At the moment of conversion, you becoming in Christ, there is now a new ruling master in your heart. The new ruling master is the good Holy Spirit, full of grace and mercy, right? So now we have a new controlling master. There is, there is an actual new you inside of you at the moment of conversion. Okay, this is the new paradigm in the new picture. Now here's the third thing. Look at Romans 11. This idea of the gospel doctrine of sanctification. I'm sorry, Romans 6, 11, verse 11. Look at verse 11 down there. Here's the last thing I want to just point out about this doctrine of sanctification. So Paul has just unpacked this idea of you are dead to sin. You are now alive in Jesus. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. There is an actual new you in you. The old you is dead. That the new you is here. It's actually, it's true, it's happened. He just, he just walked us through that. And then you get to verse 11 and he goes on to say this. So you also talking to, to believers, people in Christ. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You actually now have to live in such a way where you're believing that, he's saying. He's saying that as a Christian, we've got to consider this. We've got to think about this. We, we've got to see that if we're a Christian, we are actually dead to sin that this has actually happened, that the old you is gone and the new you is here. We've got to think about these things. We've got to consider these things. Let's just paraphrase it this way. I think Paul is saying this. If you are going to live effectively as a Christian, fruitfully as a Christian, you've got to actually believe that this has happened. You've got to actually know that this has happened, that in your past, at the moment of conversion, that old you, full of all of these deformed des desires at war with God, that old you has been done away with. It has been crucified. It has been, it's, you know, it's been given this death blow. And there is a new you there. You are now controlled by the Spirit of God. You can now, I mean, this, this is the implications. You can now actually say no to sin. Every, every Christian now has the ability any particular sin has the ability to say no to it because we've got this new ruling master in our heart called the Spirit of God. Okay, this is the doctrine of sanctification. This is gospel doctrine, the moment of conversion. Old you is dead, new you, empowered by the Spirit of God, is now here. The doctrine of sanctification. Now, that leads to the question, if that's gospel doctrine, what sort of a culture should flow from that? If gospel doctrine is at the moment of conversion, the old you has been, you know, has been killed, the, the new you has been resurrected and put in you, then what sort of a culture should, should flow from that, should grow in that? If, if, if Romans 6 is gospel doctrine, then Romans 8 verses 11 and 12 are the culture. This is the culture. And just in short, we could, we could call the culture this. If the doctrine is we have died to sin, raised to walk in newness of life, the culture is this. 
It's a culture that takes Jesus seriously and takes sin seriously. That is actually pursuing holiness. See, if if this is gospel doctrine, that you have died to sin, the culture is a culture of holiness. That's actually pursuing putting sin to death in our life. That's actually pursuing living rightly before God. That's actually pursuing holiness. That's the culture of holiness that grows out of this doctrine of sanctification. So so here it is in Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I think it's an interesting verse. He's just clarifying that you owe your flesh, that old part of you, you owe that thing nothing. All it's giving you is misery. Therefore, you owe, you owe that old man nothing. That, that flesh in you, that, that in, you know, internal part of you that's at war with God, you owe that part of you absolutely nothing. But think about what you owe God. The, the flesh has given you nothing. This, God has given you everything, right? Just read Romans 8, 1 through 11, and you'll see a snapshot of what God has given you. This is the God who's given you everything, who's been so kind to you, to reconcile you to himself, to bring you into his family, to adopt you, and to pour out all of these promises towards you. I think Paul's just reminding us that, no, we're not debtors to the flesh. We're debtors to God. We owe God everything so that in any moment when God is saying, this is what I want from you next, we should have very open hands saying yes to God. I'm not going to say no to this God that I owe my life to. We're not debtors to the flesh. Then you get to verse 13. And this is like one of those verses that every Christian should have memorized. This is one of those places in the Bible that we all need to be reminded of consistently. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, here's what will happen. You will die. If if, if you do this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you Put to death the things of the flesh, the deeds of the body. You will live. That's the culture, a culture of holiness. Okay, so let me just take it in kind of three questions. There's a what, there's a how, and there's a why. So let's just kind of work through these. Here's the what. What is Paul telling us to do in Romans 8, 13? The what. So let's just start by answering that question by tying kind of a bow on and and unpacking Romans 6 in conjunction with Romans 8. Because Romans 6 is saying this, you died to sin, it's dead. Then Romans 8 is saying, but now you go put sin to death. So I read that thinking, well, well, what is it? Have we died to it or do we still need to put it to death? What's going on here? And the answer is yes, yes. It's a both and, right? So, okay, now think about how this works itself out. In the Bible, there is an already but not yet tension for every Christian living in the here and now. There's an already but not yet tension. So when you become a Christian, God saves you, adopts you into the family, and he gives all of these beautiful promises to his sons and daughters. And he gives a down payment on those promises. He actually starts coming through on those promises immediately. So he gives this down payment on the promises. But there will be a day in the future where all of these promises that God has made will come to fruition. See, we already have the promises. They're already at work. They've already begun, but there's a not yet to them. 
And there will be a day where either we die or Jesus comes back where all of these promises are going to come to fruition. Well, God will take the lump sum of what is still owed us in his promises and he will pour that lump sum out in front of us. So it's an already we're dead to sin. That's Romans 6. But there's a not yet to that promise. So Paul says in Romans 8, here's the not yet. There is still sin in you that needs to be put to death. So Romans 6 is that body of sin, that flesh, that internal part of you that's at war with God. It has been given a death blow. It is, it is, it's dead in the sense that it is dying, but it hasn't breathed its last. Therefore, Romans 8, Paul says this. Therefore, because it's been given this death blow, but it hasn't breathed its last, now you've got to put sin to death. See, let's think about it this way. Let's go back and use the old territory. Remember the territory? Your heart's a territory, this whole picture. So at the moment of conversion, the old ruling master is kicked out. It's dethroned in our lives. So that, that old ruling master of the flesh is dethroned. But listen to this. It's not yet destroyed. It will be one day, but it's not yet destroyed. It's been given a death blow, but it hasn't breathed its last. So that dethroned enemy called the flesh, that internal part of us that's at war with God, that body of sin, that old man, that internal part of you, it's been dethroned. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart and is now the controlling master of your heart. But the question is, well, what is that old dethroned part of you? What is it doing now? It, it's, it's dying, but it's not dead. So what is it doing? I think this is the picture we should all have of that. It's receded into the jungles of your heart where it now wages a guerrilla war. See, this is where we all are right now. We're in, that, we're in that moment in our Christian journey where it's been dethroned, but it's not destroyed. It's, it's, it's receded into the jungles and this guerrilla war is being waged. So here's what that means for every Christian. Although sin no longer reigns in you, it still remains in you. And because it remains in you, we've got to know what Paul says in Romans 8, that we actually have to be about the work of putting sin to death. We've got to be about that sort of work. Okay, now this word, uh, this idea of putting sin to death. It, the old translations used to translate uh, Romans 8, 13, that, that idea of putting sin to death, it used to translate it to mortify sin. Mortification is the same thing as saying putting sin to death. Mortification is kind of the theological way of saying we should be about the work of putting sin to death. Now, when you think of mortification or putting sin to death, I want you to hear this very clearly. Mortification or putting sin to death is not a method. It's not like a do one, two, three, four, five, and then you've done it. That's not, that's not the biblical picture of it. Mortification, putting sin to death, is not a method. It's a mentality. It's a way the Christian lives. And the Christian lives like this. I'm gonna wake up every day and everywhere that I see sin, it's dying. I'm putting it to death. I, it's either one of two things. I gratify the flesh and I die or I kill the, the flesh and I live. I'm gonna be about that work of killing the flesh so that I can live. See, this is what mortification is. It is saying no to the flesh. It is putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's saying no to death, and it's saying yes to the Spirit and yes to life. It's a mentality that wakes up taking that seriously. I've got death in front of me today, and I've got life in front of me today, and I'm going with life. It's a mentality that says that. I'm going to do everything I can to weaken and to eradicate sin in my life. This is putting sin to death. This is the, the what that Paul is calling us to. Now you get to the how. 
And this verse is going to show us four things, just real briefly here, of the how. It's going to indicate some things I think we need to consider in terms of when it's talking about mortification, putting sin to death, things that we need to think about here. So here's the first one on the how. That mortification or putting sin to death, it's universal. Look at Romans 8.13 again. It says, if, the second half of the verse here, it says, if by the Spirit you put to death the, and I want you just to maybe circle the little S on the end of this word, the deeds of the body. Not deed of the body, but deeds of the body. Not, not, one, not just one area of your life, but every place that you see sin, Paul is saying, you've got to put these things to death. You have died to this sin already in the past. Therefore now, put these things to death. Wherever you see sin remaining in you, you've got to have that mentality. It's not a selective thing here. It's not a any, many, money, mo. I'll take that one. Let's get serious about that. But these, not so much. Paul's saying, no, it's a universal thing. It's a deeds thing. It's an everywhere you see it. We've got to be a people who are putting these things to death. I, mean, I, I just think that we need to hear that word because if you're like me, here's what you'll probably see about yourself. That you've got some areas of sin in your life that you're like, yes. When I think about that, I get mad about it. I hate it and I want to see it go. But then there's these other areas of life where we look at it and think, you know what, I don't know if I just all the way want that to go. I mean, this one, we kind of keep under lock and key thinking, well, maybe we can just kind of control this one. Maybe we can just kind of keep it in this room locked up where it won't kill anyone, but we'll just kind of go and appease it at will back here. I just think some of us need to hear this. That what Paul is saying is, no, it's not like this one, but not that one. It's everywhere we see it. That, that's the way we are to approach putting sin to death in our life. I like the illustration one pastor used. He said, if I gave you a free reign of my house this weekend, I said, man, you can have my house for the weekend, but uh, just you, you can't look in this one room. That, that one room, you need to stay out of that room. It's your house, but just don't look at that room. See, if I say that, here's what I'm really saying to you. You can use the house for a weekend. You can be a weekend tenant, but it's not your house. If there's an except this one room, it's really my house. And I want you to know it's my house. So you're welcome to stay in it for a weekend, but it's not yours, it's mine. Now think about this and applying it to God here. So whenever we look at God and say, um, God, I'll let you have this part of my life, but this part, no way I'm letting you have this part. We're doing the exact same thing. We're looking at God and saying, God, let's just make real sure we're all clear on where the boundaries are in our relationship. You don't own me, I own me. You're welcome to, to do anything you want in these areas, but this area, you're not welcome to. You see, you see the dynamic there? See, whenever there is an accept this one thing issue with you and God, what you're saying to God and what I'm saying to God is, God, you don't own me, I own me. So, so God, let's, let's get the relationship right here. And can we all just be, be straight? God owns us, right? God owns us. He owns every room in our life. And every room in our life is his. So our job is to be open-handed and to be serious about putting sin wherever we see it in whatever form we see it in to death in our life. So it's universal. Here's the second part. It's relentless. Look at that, that verb, putting sin to death. Do you see it? put to death. You put these things to death. That's in the present tense. And in Greek, present tense means ongoing action. 
that this is not a one time and you're finished thing. This is a constant, lifelong, every day when you wake up sort of a thing. That putting sin to death, you never leave off the, the work of that. That it's a daily, by, you know, minute by minute sort of work. I think this is a healthy thing to think about for a Christian. That sin never leaves off the work of trying to destroy you, right? It never leaves off the work of trying to find one little inroad. It's like a hacker that's always, always probing, always looking for one little way in. Sin is always doing that. And the moment you put your life in cruise control and how you're thinking about sin, putting sin to death, the moment you put your life in cruise control, you don't know if that's gonna be the day where sin wins, where sin finds its little opening and comes in. And can we all just see, we're all one, literally one minute away from wrecking our life, from wrecking our marriage, wrecking our parenting. We're all one minute away from that. And in light of that, Paul is saying, it's an ongoing, constant, daily, minute by minute, taking these things seriously. So it's, it's relentless. Here's the third thing we see about it is it's ruthless. I want you to look at these words one more time, these three words right at the end of verse 13. I would love for you to underline, circle these, whatever you have to do just to highlight this, this reality. Put to death. I want you to just look at those three words in your text there. Romans 8, 13. Put to to death. That's what God's asking us to do. It's not to, to come in, you know, it's not to kind of wade into the, the, the jungles of your heart. You, you see sin there and then you, you know, you open hand slap it. That's not what God's calling us to do. He's, he's calling us to wade into the jungles of our heart and where we see sin to put those things to death. So not to coddle it. Not to appease it, but to actually be about the work of crucifying it, of weakening it so to the point where it's gone and done in your life. He's calling us to approach it like that with a ruthlessness. See, you, you don't approach a person with the intent of putting them to death with soft hands, do you? No, I mean, you come with everything you've got if that's your intention. And that's the, the mentality that Paul is saying, this is how you have to approach sin. Now, when I think about this idea of putting sin to death, I cannot not think about a guy named John Owen. He was a pastor of a few hundred years ago. He wrote some of the best work on this idea of putting sin to death. I think it's like in Christian history, it's the gold standard on this idea of living in such a way where we are putting sin to death in our lives. I want you to listen to what he said. This is in his book, The Mortification of Sin and Believers. Here's believers. What does it mean to put sin to death in the life of a believer? That's the book. And here's what he says in it. Commenting on this verse, he says this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Selah on that for a second. Pause and think on that. Here are the two options. You kill it, it kills you. And that ought to inform the way we deal with sin, right? It kills you, you kill it. He that stands still and allows his enemies to double blows upon him will without resistance... Uh, upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. If sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls. Are we hearing that? It's always at work in the, in the business of killing our souls. And we be slothful, negligent, foolish in proceeding to the ruin thereof. Can we expect a comfortable outcome? The answer is no. 
If, if we're slothful and negligent in this, we should expect death, not life, he's saying. He says, there is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so while we live in this world. And I love this last line. Let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. It just doesn't work that way. You can't kill sin with few, easy, and gentle strokes. He goes on to say, and I just love this imagery. I mean, in a weird way, I love the imagery. He says, to lay your hands upon the neck of sin and don't let go until it stops breathing. He's saying, that's the way you've got to approach sin. It kills you, you kill it. So what's it gonna be? Who's gonna die here? He's saying that, that, you know, gentle steps never work in weakening and dealing with sin. It never works. He's saying you have to, there's gotta be a radicalness and a craziness to how you would go about that. Um, I, I watched uh, here recently, I took Laura and we watched C.S. Lewis's, uh, there was a play up in Dallas of uh, The Great Divorce. And there's this one little uh, moment, this scene in The Great Divorce that I just love. And you've got this angel and he's talking to uh, this guy and, and on this guy's shoulder is a little red lizard. And the, the red lizard re- represents kind of the old man in his life. It's that inner voice that is luring towards sin, that is, that is you know, pushing him towards sin. And the angel comes along and says, that, do you want me to kill that red lizard? And, and the guy starts thinking about, well, I, I don't know if I want it dead. I mean, this guy's kind of been an old friend for a long time. I, I don't know if I'd like for you to kill it. Maybe we can just contain it. Maybe we'll just kind of keep it, you know, at a safe distance here. We'll, we'll just kind of keep it contained here. We don't have to kill it, though. That would be too extreme to go about doing that. And, and then the, the little lizard starts talking. He, 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 he said, what, what would you do with, without me? I, I'll be quiet. I'll be nice. I'll stay right up here on your shoulder. I won't give you any problems. Not a problem at all. And C.S. Lewis says, you know, at this moment in, in The Great Divorce, he says, in this moment are all moments. In this moment are all moments. See, this is where we all live, isn't it? We've got things in our life that we know are out of of tune with the way God has created us to be. And rather than going after those things, we start thinking about these things. Well, I've been, this thing's like been a companion forever. I mean, surely we don't have to kill the thing, do we? I mean, we, we could surely keep this thing contained kind of behind lock and key. It'll kind of stay in its place. We'll all be okay. No one will die in this. And Paul's saying, that's not the way sin works. It's either you die or it dies. Take your pick. See, what Paul is talking about here is being very radical in the way that we would deal with sin. See, if I were to come to you and say, hey, in your neighborhood, um, there is a report of a line that is out. And that line has killed like 48 people and they're all really strong, really powerful people. And I'm just saying that line's probably gonna kill you too. So I would just be careful. Would you come out of your house with a leash? No, you wouldn't, would you? Because a leash is not gonna work. Would you come out of your house with a little cage hoping you could get the, no, you wouldn't. You would come out with something that would kill the lion, wouldn't you? That's what you're gonna come out with. And Paul's saying that is the sort of mentality you have to have when it comes to sin. Either it kills you or you kill it, one or the other. Those are the only options. And and real briefly here, let let me just... um, throw this out, that when it comes to to thinking about sin and where sin is in your life, there's two ways I think are really important for you to think about this. One is what we might call sin in the hands. This is your behavior. These are things that you can see that are out of whack. This is, you just exploded in anger when it wasn't called for. 
This is pornography, things that you can see. This is materialism. Like you've got credit card craziness going right now and you just can't control it. You're just overspending consistently. So these are all things of the hand, things that you can see, they're behaviors. Now here's what, here's what Paul's saying here. If you want these things to be done with, you cannot take gentle measures. If you're in credit card debt and you have a hard time controlling your spending, I want you to look at me. Why do you have a credit card? Seriously. Why, why would you have a credit card? Here's the reason. It's the little red lizard on our shoulder and we are thinking about every, every way that we could kind of keep it contained, surely kind of be okay with it. It'll stay in its place. We'll, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. If right now pornography is a, is a struggle with you, and that's guy, that's girl, that's everyone in the room right now. If it's a struggle to you, like, why is there a computer out in your home? Why is there any computer in your home? And you say, well, maybe I'm past the computer, I'm to my phone. Why do you not have a flip phone right now? And, I, like, and you're saying, I'm being dead serious. Because here's the thing. You know why we don't have a flip phone? It's because we have a little red lizard up here that's saying, no, you really need an iPhone. You, you really need to be able to check this little thing when you, and here's the, you don't need it. And here's what Paul's saying. If you're gonna get any sort of freedom from these things, you cannot take small, gentle, you know, these little incremental steps. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, you've got to go where you've got your hands around the neck of these things and you don't let go until it stops breathing. That's the idea. But it's not just sin in the hands. It's also, listen to this, the deeper places of sin are always sins in the heart. See, what, what behavior is always showing you is your heart. Sin in the hands is revealing sin in the heart. See, sin, all the things that you can see in your life are always indicative of unbelief in your heart. Rather than trusting in Jesus and all these promises that God gives us in Jesus, we are trusting in idols. See, the, the major thing, if, if you wanna have any sort of victory long-term up here, like with your hands, behavior, if you wanna have long-term, this is the only way to long-term victory, is for your heart to actually be satisfied in God. So we have to be about the work of not just dealing with the hands, but dealing with the heart, keeping our affections, our desires for God strong. See, if, if right now I ask you the question, on a one to 10 scale, how are your affections for Jesus? 10 is, they are so rich and so deep and running so well. One is, I haven't thought about Jesus in forever. Here's the thing, that is a massively important question. Sin and the hands are always indicative of a low part of the scale with the heart. And, and getting any sort of long-term victory with the hands requires us on a heart level, having a heart that is satisfied and joyful in Jesus. That's what it requires. The last how, and then we're gonna kind of wrap up here. The last how. Look at verse 13 again. It's dependent upon the spirit. Isn't it interesting that he says, put sin to death by the spirit. So it, it's just interesting. Like the subject of put sin to death is you, Christian, those of you who are in Christ, you have died to sin in the past. Now you can actually go about putting sin to death. But then he says, hey, hey, you Christian, that you need to go proactively put sin to death. You can't do that without the Spirit. Like the Spirit's over here and you can't do that without the help of the Spirit. You need to go do it, but you can't do it without the Spirit. Now, isn't that an interesting parallel? Saying you do it, but you need the Spirit to do it. 
I love how one old Puritan pastor said it. He said, without the Spirit, we cannot do it. But without us, the Spirit will not do it. I think that's the way to look at it. Without the Spirit, we cannot. Without us, the Spirit will not. So I think, what does this practically, like how does this work itself out? For a Christian, we are to be proactive in these things. And all the while, we're to be praying that the Spirit of God would be doing its work in us. And what does the Spirit do in regards to sin? It shows us sin. See, that's where a lot of us are this morning. We actually need God the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see things that we're not seeing. The Spirit convicts us of sin. It gives us godly sorrow over sin, knowing that that sin is a grievous offense toward God. And then it enables us to do something about sin. I actually turn from that sin and to follow Jesus. See, the Spirit of God enables all of that. So it's this proactivity. We're putting sin to death, all the while dependent upon the Spirit of God to show us sin, convict us of sin, help us deal with sin in our life. And lastly, the why. And we'll finish here. The why. For if you live, look at verse 13 again. For if, it's a big if, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, look at this last phrase, the last three things here. You will live. If you put it to death, you will live. In 1933, a guy named uh, Donald Wyman was uh, in a remote part of a Pennsylvania forest cutting down trees for lumber. And he cuts down a tree and the tree falls on him and pins his left leg to the ground. And, you know, he spends an hour screaming for help, hoping somebody's going to come and rescue him. And he finally realizes <clears throat> no one's coming. And he is in that precarious situation of what in the world do I do if no one's coming? So he does what I think any person who wants to live would do. He unlaces his boot, takes the leather bootstrap, and ties it as a tourniquet around his left leg, takes out his pocket knife, and he cuts his leg off a few inches below his knee. He crawls back to his truck, drives to go get help, and here's the thing, listen to this. He lives to tell about it. He lives to tell about it. Now, I want you for a minute to put yourself in, in that predicament. You're pinned to the ground. What are you going to do? Can I just tell you what you better do? You better get about the work of cutting your leg off. You know why? Because that's the only way you're going to live. And living is better than dying. So we cut our leg because it's the only two options. Either we keep our leg and we die, or we do away with our leg and we live. There really isn't a choice there. You, you cut your leg off and you live. That's what you do. Now, I think this gets right down to the heart of most of our problems and how we deal with sin. We actually think we can keep our sin and live. And Paul's saying, you can't. There's two options. One option, you gratify the, the desires of your flesh and you die if you do that. You're gonna stay under the limb and you're gonna be trapped there forever and you're gonna die. Or you cut sin out of your life and here's the great thing, you get to live. You actually get to walk in the spirit and newness of life. Those are the only options you have. They're the only options I have. We gratify the desires of the flesh, we die. We crucify those desires and we live by the Spirit. We put to death the deeds of the flesh and we live. Those are the options. See, I think the reason that so many of us coddle sin is we kind of get this halfway thing going. Well, I'll keep this and it's not gonna make much difference. Keeping sin, gratifying the flesh, not doing the proactive things God would call you to do. You can't do that and live. If you do this, you die. 
And if you put to death these things and you do what God, then you live. See, this is what Paul's trying to show us. This is the fruit of putting sin to death. You actually get to live. You actually be, you get to be the human being that God has created you to be. You get to walk in newness of life. You get, you get life in the full. See, I, maybe one other problem with holiness here. I think a lot of us, when we think of holiness and putting sin to death, we think of this idea of, man, I'm, I'm not going to get to do the things I really want out of this vague sense of obligation. I know God's asking me to do this, but I don't want to do it. It's going to be terrible. And God, God is saying, no, that's not the way this works. Putting sin to death, as painful as it's going to be, is how you get to life. Isn't it paradoxical that putting our darling sins to death is actually the way that life grows? That putting the things we hold so dear to death, that's actually where life comes from for the Christian. Now, in light of that, let's pray for a minute. I just want to give you a second to consider these things and think about these things. And Where in your life right now does sin need to be put to death? Like what, what it, maybe we could ask it this way. What is God asking of you right now? You know, oftentimes there's this putting off. There's things that have to be killed and like taken out of our life. And other times there, there's things where God is asking us to put on, or maybe it's a both and this morning. Where maybe something has already been put off though, and now God is asking you to, to go do something. And I, I just want to hold this out in front of you. Whatever that is, whatever God is saying, put these things off. And whatever God is saying, put these things on, here's the reason God is saying that. Because he wants you to live. That's the reason. He wants you to walk in newness of life. So where are those things this morning? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's interpersonally between, maybe it's you and one of your sons and daughters. Maybe it's you and a parent. Maybe it's you and a friend. There's all sorts of bitterness and tension there. And <clears throat> What is God saying to put off? And what is God saying to put on? Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a, a lustful eye. Wherever God is asking for hard obedience, but I just want to remind you again, it's because God wants life for you. There is nothing more serious this morning and more important than you dealing with what, whatever sin the Holy Spirit right now is bringing to light than you dealing decisively with it. Nothing in your life is more important than this moment right now. In this moment are all moments. You either believe that you can have this and have life too, or you get your, your thinking in alignment with Scripture knowing that you can't have that in life. You can't have them both. That if you want life, this thing has to be put to death. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room, and I, I pray that you would help us all this morning.
God, all of us deal decisively with sin. God, we all need help in this. So, Father, I pray right now you would be moving, you would be, the Spirit of God would be doing its work of of helping us see, of recognizing things, convicting us, moving us to obedience. So, God, will you do that this morning? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen.